Volume Four, Chapter Twelve, Part C of The Mysteries of Adolfo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume Four, Chapter Twelve, Part C. The man who was called Jacques now returned from the stone gallery. A fire is lighted there," said he, "and the birds are dressing. The table too is spread there, for that place is warmer than this." His companions approved of the removal and invited their guests to follow to the gallery, of whom Blanche appeared distressed and remained seated. And Saint Foix looked at the count, who said he preferred the comfortable blaze of the fire he was then near. The hunters, however, commended the warmth of the other apartment and pressed his removal with such seeming courtesy that the count, half doubting and half fearful of betraying his doubts, consented to go. The long and ruinous passages through which they went somewhat daunted him, but the thunder which now burst in loud peals above made it dangerous to quit this place of shelter, and he forbore to provoke his conductors by showing that he distrusted them. The hunters led the way with a lamp. The Count de Savoie, who wished to please their hosts by some instances of familiarity, carried each a seat, and Blanche followed, with faltering steps. As she passed on, part of her dress caught on a nail in the wall, and, while she stopped somewhat too scrupulously to disengage it, the Count, who was talking to saint Foix, and neither of whom observed the circumstance, followed their conductor round an abrupt angle of the passage, and Blanche was left behind in darkness. The thunder prevented them from hearing her call, but, having disengaged her dress, she quickly followed, as she thought, the way they had taken. A light that glimmered at a distance confirmed this belief, and she proceeded towards an open door, once it issued, conjecturing the room beyond to be the stone gallery the man had spoken of. Hearing voices as she advanced, she paused within a few paces of the chamber, that she might be certain whether she was right, and from thence, by the light of a lamp that hung from the ceiling, observed four men, seated round a table, over which they leant in apparent consultation. In one of them she distinguished the features of him whom she had observed gazing at saint Foix with such deep attention, and who was now speaking in an earnest, though restrained voice, till, one of his companions seeming to oppose him, they spoke together in a loud and harsher tone. Blanche, alarmed by perceiving that neither her father or saint Foix were there, and terrified at the fierce countenances and menace of these men, was turning hastily from the chamber to pursue her search of the gallery, when she heard one of the men say, "'Let all dispute end here. Who talks of danger? Follow my advice, and there will be none. Secure them, and the rest are an easy prey.' Blanche, struck with these words, paused a moment to hear more. "'There is nothing to be got by the rest,' said one of his companions. "'I am never for blood when I can help it. Dispatch the two others, and our business is done. The rest may go.' "'May they so!' exclaimed the first ruffian, with a tremendous oath. "'What, to tell how we have disposed of their masters, and to send the king's troops to drag us to the wheel? He was always a choice adviser. I warrant we have not yet forgot St. Thomas's Eve last year.' Blanche's heart now sunk with horror. Her first impulse was to retreat from the door, but, when she would have gone, her trembling frame refused to support her, and, having tottered a few paces to a more obscure part of the passage, she was compelled to listen to the dreadful counsels of those who, she was no longer suffered to doubt, were banditti. In the next moment she heard the following words, "'Why, you would not murder the whole gang!' "'I warrant our lives are as good as theirs,' replied his comrade. If we don't kill them, they will hang us. Better they should die than we be hanged. Better, better, 
cried his comrades. "'To commit murder is a hopeful way of escaping the gallows,' said the first ruffian. "'Many an honest fellow has run his head into the noose that way, though.' There was a pause of some moments, during which they appeared to be considering. "'Confound those fellows!' exclaimed one of the robbers impatiently. "'They ought to have been here by this time. They will come back presently with the old story and no booty. If they were here, our business would be plain and easy.' I see we shall not be able to do the business to-night, for our numbers are not equal to the enemy, and in the morning they will be for marching off, and how can we detain them without force? I have been thinking of a scheme that will do, said one of his comrades. If we can dispatch the two chevaliers silently, it will be easy to master the rest. That's a plausible scheme, in good faith, said another, with a smile of scorn. If I can eat my way through the prison wall, I shall be at liberty. How can we dispatch them silently? "'By poison,' replied his companions. "'Well said, that will do,' said the second ruffian. "'That will give a lingering death, too, and satisfy my revenge. "'These barons shall take care how they again tempt our vengeance.' "'I knew the son the moment I saw him,' said the man, "'whom Blanche had observed gazing on Saint-Foy. "'Though he does not know me, the father I had almost forgotten.' "'Well, you may say what you will,' said the third ruffian. "'But I don't believe he is the baron,' and I am as likely to know as any of you, for I was one of them that attacked him with our brave lads that suffered. And was not I another? said the first ruffian. I tell you, he is the baron, but what does it signify whether he is or not? Shall we let all this booty go out of our hands? It's not often we have such luck as this. While we run the chance of the wheel for smuggling a few pounds of tobacco, to cheat the king's manufactory, and of breaking our necks down the precipices in the chase of our food, and, now and then, rob a brother smuggler or a straggling pilgrim of what scarcely repays us the powder we fire at them shall we let such a prize as this go why they have enough about them to keep us for i am not for that i am not for that replied the third robber let us make the most of them only if this is the baron i should like to have a flash the more at him for the sake of our brave comrades that he brought to the gallows ay ay flash as much as you will rejoined the first man but I tell you, the baron is a taller man. Confound your quibbling, said the second ruffian. Shall we let them go or not? If we stay here much longer, they will take the hint and march off without our leave. Let them be who they will. They are rich, or why all those servants? Did you see the ring he you called the baron had on his finger? It was a diamond, but he has not got it on now. He saw me looking at it, I warrant, and took it off. Aye, and then there is the picture. Did you see that? She has not taken that off observed the first ruffian. It hangs at her neck. If it had not sparkled so, I should not have found it out, for it was almost hid by her dress. Those are diamonds, too, and a rare many of them there must be, to go round such a large picture. "'But how are we to manage this business?' said the second ruffian. "'Let us talk of that. There is no fear of there being booty enough, but how are we to secure it?' "'Aye, aye,' said his comrades. "'Let us talk of that, and remember no time is to be lost.' I am still for poison, observed the third, but consider their number. Why, there are nine or ten of them, and armed too. When I saw so many at the gate, I was not for letting them in, you know, nor you either. I thought they might be some of our enemies, replied the second. I did not so much mind numbers. But you must mind them now, rejoined his comrade, or it will be worse for you. We are not more than six, and how can we master ten by open force? I tell you, we must give some of them a dose, and the rest may then be managed. I'll tell you a better way, rejoined the other impatiently. 
draw closer. Blanche, who had listened to this conversation in an agony which it would be impossible to describe, could no longer distinguish what was said, for the ruffians now spoke in lowered voices. But the hope that she might save her friends from the plot if she could find her way quickly to them suddenly reanimated her spirits and lent her strength enough to turn her steps in search of the gallery. Terror, however, and darkness conspired against her, and, having moved a few yards, the feeble light that issued from the chamber no longer even contended with the gloom, and, her foot stumbling over a step that crossed the passage, she fell to the ground. The noise startled the banditti, who became suddenly silent, and then all rushed to the passage to examine whether any person was there who might have overheard their counsels. Blanche saw them approaching and perceived their fierce and eager looks, but before she could raise herself they discovered and seized her, and, as they dragged her towards the chamber they had quitted, her screams drew from them horrible threatenings. Having reached the room, they began to consult what they should do with her. "'Let us first know what she had heard,' said the chief robber. "'How long have you been in the passage, lady, and what brought you there?' "'Let us first secure that picture,' said one of his comrades, approaching the trembling Blanche. "'Fair lady, by your leave that picture is mine. Come.' Surrender it, or I shall seize it. Blanche, entreating their mercy, immediately gave up the miniature, while another of the ruffians fiercely interrogated her, concerning what she had overheard of their conversation, when, her confusion and terror too plainly telling what her tongue feared to confess, the ruffians looked expressively upon one another, and two of them withdrew to a remote part of the room, as if to consult further. "'These are diamonds by St. Peter,' exclaimed the fellow, who had been examining the miniature. And here is a very pretty picture, too, faith, as handsome a young chevalier as you would wish to see by a summer's sun. Lady, this is your spouse, I warrant, for it is the spark that was in your company just now. Blanche, sinking with terror, conjured him to have pity on her, and, delivering him her purse, promised to say nothing of what had passed if he would suffer her to return to her friends. He smiled ironically, and was going to reply when his attention was called off by a distant noise, and, while he listened, he grasped the arm of Blanche more firmly, as if he feared she would escape from him, and she again shrieked for help. The approaching sounds called the ruffians from the other part of the chamber. "'We are betrayed,' said they. "'But let us listen a moment. Perhaps it is only our comrades come in from the mountains, and if so, our work is sure. Listen!' A distant discharge of shot confirmed this supposition for a moment, but, in the next, the former sounds drawing near, the clashing of swords, mingled with the voices of loud contention and with heavy groans, were distinguished in the avenue leading to the chamber. While the ruffians prepared their arms, they heard themselves called by some of their comrades afar off, and then a shrill horn was sounded without the fortress, a signal, it appeared, they too well understood, for three of them, leaving the Lady Blanche to the care of the fourth, instantly rushed from the chamber." While Blanche, trembling and nearly fainting, was supplicating for release, she heard amid the tumult that approached the voice of St. Foy, and she had scarcely renewed her shriek when the door of the room was thrown open, and he appeared, much disfigured with blood, and pursued by several ruffians. Blanche neither saw or heard any more. Her head swam, her sight failed, and she became senseless in the arms of the robber who had detained her. When she recovered, she perceived by the gloomy light that trembled round her, that she was in the same chamber, but neither the Count, St. Foy, or any other person appeared, and she continued, for some time, entirely still, and nearly in a state of stupefaction. But, the dreadful images of the past returning, she endeavoured to raise herself, that she might seek her friends, when a sullen groan, at a little distance, 
reminded her of St. Foy and of the condition in which she had seen him enter this room. Then, starting from the floor by a sudden effort of horror, she advanced to the place whence the sound had proceeded, where a body was lying stretched upon the pavement, and where, by the glimmering light of a lamp, she discovered the pale and disfigured countenance of St. Foy. Her horrors at that moment may be easily imagined. He was speechless. His eyes were half-closed, and, on the hand which she grasped in the agony of despair, cold damps had settled. While she vainly repeated his name and called for assistance, steps approached, and a person entered the chamber, who, she soon perceived, was not the Count, her father. But what was her astonishment when, supplicating him to give his assistance to saint Foy, she discovered Ludovico. He scarcely paused to recognize her, but immediately bound up the wounds of the Chevalier, and, perceiving that he had fainted probably from loss of blood, ran for water. But he had been absent only a few moments when Blanche heard other steps approaching, and, while she was almost frantic with apprehension of the ruffians, the light of a torch flashed upon the walls, and then Count de Villefort appeared, with an affrighted countenance, and breathless with impatience, calling upon his daughter. At the sound of his voice she rose and ran to his arms, while he, letting fall the bloody sword he held, pressed her to his bosom in a transport of gratitude and joy, and then hastily inquired for saint Foy, who now gave some signs of life. Ludovico, soon after, returning with water and brandy, the former was applied to his lips, and the latter to his temples and hands, and Blanche at length saw him unclose his eyes, and then heard him inquire for her. But the joy she felt on this occasion was interrupted by new alarms, when Ludovico said it would be necessary to remove Monsieur saint Foy immediately, and added, "'The banditti that are out, my lord, were expected home an hour ago, and they will certainly find us if we delay. That shrill horn, they know, is never sounded by their comrades but on most desperate occasions, and it echoes among the mountains for many leagues round. I have known them brought home by its sound even from the Pierre de Melicante. Is anybody standing watch at the great gate, my lord?' "'Nobody,' replied the Count. The rest of my people are now scattered about, I scarcely know where. Go, Ludovico, collect them together, and look out yourself, and listen if you hear the feet of mules. Ludovico then hurried away, and the Count consulted as to the means of removing saint Foy, who could not have borne the motion of a mule, even if his strength would have supported him in the saddle. While the Count was telling that the banditti, whom they had found in the fort, were secured in the dungeon, Blanche observed that he was himself wounded, and that his left arm was entirely useless but he smiled at her anxiety, assuring her the wound was trifling. The Count's servants, except two who kept watch at the gate, now appeared, and, soon after, Ludovico. "'I think I hear mules coming along the glen, my lord,' said he, "'but the roaring of the torrent below will not let me be certain. However, I have brought what will serve the chevalier,' he added, showing a bare skin, fastened to a couple of long poles, which had been adapted for the purpose of bringing home such of the banditti as happened to be wounded in their encounters. Ludovico spread it on the ground, and, placing the skins of several goats upon it, made a kind of bed, into which the chevalier, who was however now much revived, was gently lifted, and, the poles being raised upon the shoulders of the guides, whose footing among these steeps could best be depended upon, he was borne along with an easy motion. Some of the Count's servants were also wounded, but not materially, and, their wounds being bound up, they now followed to the great gate. As they passed along the hall, a loud tumult was heard at some distance, and Blanche was terrified. "'It is only those villains in the dungeon, my lady,' said Ludovico. "'They seem to be bursting it open,' said the Count. "'No, my lord,' replied Ludovico. "'It has an iron door. We have nothing to fear from them. 
but let me go first and look out from the rampart. They quickly followed him and found their mules browsing before the gates, where the party listened anxiously but heard no sound except that of the torrent below and of the early breeze sighing among the branches of the old oak that grew in the court, and they were now glad to perceive the first tints of dawn over the mountain tops. When they had mounted their mules, Ludovico, undertaking to be their guide, led them by an easier path than that by which they had formerly ascended into the glen. "'We must avoid that valley to the east, my lord,' said he, "'or we may meet the banditti. They went out that way in the morning.' The travellers, soon after, quitted this glen, and found themselves in a narrow valley that stretched towards the northwest. The morning light upon the mountains now strengthened fast, and gradually discovered the green hillocks that skirted the winding feet of the cliffs, tufted with cork-tree and evergreen oak. The thunder-clouds being dispersed had left the sky perfectly serene, and Blanche was revived by the fresh breeze and by the view of verdure which the late rain had brightened. Soon after the sun arose, when the dripping rocks with the shrubs that fringed their summits and many a turfy slope below sparkled in his rays. A wreath of mist was seen, floating along the extremity of the valley, but the gale bore it before the travellers, and the sunbeams gradually drew it up towards the summit of the mountains. They had proceeded about a league, when, Saint-Foy having complained of extreme faintness, they stopped to give him refreshment, and that the man who bore him might rest. Ludovico had brought from the fort some flasks of rich Spanish wine, which now proved a reviving cordial not only to Saint-Foy, but to the whole party, though to him it gave only temporary relief, for it fed the fever that burned in his veins, and he could neither disguise in his countenance the anguish he suffered, or suppress the wish that he was arrived at the inn, where they had designed to pass the preceding night. While they thus reposed themselves under the shade of the dark green pines, the Count desired Ludovico to explain shortly by what means he had disappeared from the north apartment, how he came into the hands of the banditti, and how he had contributed so essentially to serve him and his family, for to him he justly attributed their present deliverance. Ludovico was going to obey him, when suddenly they heard the echo of a pistol shot, from the way they had passed, and they rose in alarm, hastily to pursue their route. End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part C